And now for part two. For out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote unto you with many tears. So he's talking about the writing of that letter. Not that you should be grieved, but that you might know the love which I have more abundantly unto you. That's fun. Now, you might not, someone might not read 1 Corinthians and see Paul's love in there. But apparently from Paul's perspective, he wrote it with much love. And we get this all over the place in scriptures, whom God loves, he chastens, right? Yes. And and we know as parents that that's true. You, yes. you, you have those hard conversations we said we don't like having because you love them. And uh, that's exactly why you do it. If, if it's someone that I don't care about, then I'm just not going to take the time. It's too uncomfortable. Yep. But uh, that's that's demonstrated in what Paul just said. Well, and then, and then with that, we can now take it from a larger perspective and realize Second Corinthians, if it in fact is in written response to First Corinthians, he's now explaining why he was maybe so harsh in the first letter yep. and pointing out that it's because he loves them, which now takes us to the great priesthood principle that's reflected in Doctrine and Covenants 121. But 121 describes how you engage in priesthood leadership, and which I think is useful information for male, female, anyone within this priesthood structure that we have as a church. It yeah, it doesn't matter strength. if you hold the, the, the <laughs> priesthood. It matters that if you're in a family or if you've been uh, part of a priesthood covenant and you're part of a covenant community then. Yep. If you're exercising priesthood power or priesthood authority of any kind in any situation, this advice works for you, right? In which he talks about in verse 41, no power or influence can or ought to be maintained by virtue of the priesthood only. So that's the kicker. Power and influence ought to be maintained by the priesthood, but only through these principles, right? Only by persuasion, by long-suffering, by gentleness, meekness, and love unfeigned, by kindness and pure knowledge, which shall greatly enlarge the soul without hypocrisy and without guile, of which when I talk about this with students, I tend to look at these and go, notice there's a characteristic across all of them, which is namely sincerity. Priesthood works, priesthood power, priesthood influence. We talk about what does that mean to, how do, how do you do this? You can't make anyone do anything. So what do you do? You, you try to influence them. The priesthood influences people. How do you do it? through sincerity. Your sincerity will come through. Yeah, Sincere love and sincere teaching of truth. Which which comes back to this. They're the way things are versus the way they seem to be, right? right? When you're sincere, you're doing things based on the way things are, at least to the best of your abilities. And they know that. They can recognize that. They don't always agree, but they can recognize that the person was sincere. Yeah, yeah or think, a pure in heart is another phrase for that, right? You love yeah. with purity of heart or you teach yeah. with purity of heart. And I think you see that same undergirding in the Sermon on the Mount, actually, that that is the element that makes everything else work. None of the rest of the things Christ teaches works if you're not doing it with purity of heart or sincerity. Right. And so, I mean, you get this language in here, this without Kyle, without hypocrisy, unfeigned, love unfeigned, pure knowledge. I love that one, pure knowledge. Yeah. To the best of your abilities, you're you're transparent and sincere in what you're doing in your interaction with another. But then it goes on to say, reproving but times with sharpness when moved upon by the Holy Ghost. If that that to me is such a perfect description of First Corinthians, mm -hmm. as I read it, I mean, there are times when he gets downright sarcastic in First Corinthians, and it's clear that he didn't like writing that letter and reproving from chapter one on, right? And it's all the same problem. They're all they're, they've got these disputations and divisions and strikes. Reproving the times of sharpness when moved upon by the Holy Ghost, then showing forth afterward an increase of love toward those you've been reproved. That's, that is exactly what he's doing here. Lest, yeah. lest the one who you've reproved esteems you as the enemy. Paul 
is making it quite clear. I'm not your enemy. I love you guys. I want to come visit you. I want to visit you when we are all in, in a good place, right? I am not even close to your enemy. And I think, I, so I look at Second uh, Second Corinthians chapter 2, and this is where we begin to see this principle come into play. This is, this is Paul following the, following the instruction of priesthood leadership in, in section 121, to a T in my mind. And I then agree. goes on, right? And then he goes on to say, if any have, if, if any have caused grief, he hath not grieved me, but in part, I'm not going to, I'm not going to overcharge you all. I'm not going to, I'm not going to call out any given individual. There were individuals that made mistakes, but interestingly, he doesn't call any of them out by name in first Corinthians, nor does he do so in second Corinthians right? There's things that need to be fixed, but he's not going to call them out. This isn't, this isn't personal. He's not going to take it personally, even as he's affected by it, for lack of a better term. I'm not going to, I'm not going to call people out by this. This isn't, this isn't me just, what would be the word for it? I'm not just responding to my own personal anger or hurt or whatever, right? This is, this is me as an apostle doing these things. And then he goes on to say to those individuals, I think you need to forgive them too if they've begun to change. Verse 7, so that sufficient to such a man is the punishment which is afflicted to many, so that contrarywise you ought rather to forgive him and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one should be swallowed up with overmuch sorrow. Now, we don't know who he's exactly referring to, but it's possible, if we use this as emblematic, this certainly is the principle, if he's referring to the individual from 1 Corinthians chapter 5, this is the individual that, however we're supposed to understand it, slept with his mom. Stepmom. Let's go with stepmom. That's what I'm going to assume yeah, stepmom. Something along those lines. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to go stepmom. That's just right. Now he made it quite clear that an individual needs to be uh there needs to be serious consequences there, if not excommunication. There's a way to read First Corinthians five verses one through six, in which excommunication, he's like, I'm stunned that you guys haven't done this. You you know what you need to do, and uh and it needs to, and you need to fix it. So I'm just stunned that you haven't done it yet. So now we can get this. If that's happened, one of the things that he says is, is so uh, sufficient, verse six, to such a man is punishment, which is inflicted of many. Excommunication is something where you as an individual experience it, but the whole community may feel it, if that makes sense. Yep. You don't get to participate with the community to the same level that you could have before. So I just think what we're seeing here is just, this is a great example of that type of leadership that is exhibited by Paul. This yeah. is exactly what a priest of leader should do. He's a role model now for us in terms of our own behavior as we interact with members of our own congregation. The, the idea here that excommunication or whatever it is, whatever type of ecclesiastical, oh, what do we call it, consequences that get laid down for, laid down for wrongdoing, I think are hard. The individual already feels something. They already feel like everybody's looking at you, right? Whether or not everyone yeah. is, it doesn't really matter. The individual feels that way, which is why a lot of people don't necessarily come back to the church for wrongdoing, regardless of whether it requires ecclesiastical uh, discipline or not, right? They just feel like people are looking at them. So I think this is a fascinating insight by Paul, who says that punishment is sufficient to the individual. They don't need to be inflicted by the many, right? Right. How can we as a congregation help those individuals that are working through the, the disciplinary behavior that's required for the repentance process, regardless of whether that's ecclesiastical, right? If you and I repent, when we go through the process of repentance, God's going to discipline us however God's going to decide to discipline us. The, the, the repentance process is just that. It's a process. 
And when we're going through it, this is this is maybe when we need the community more than ever before, right? The act of sustaining. Sustaining yeah. is an intriguing one. It's easy to sustain someone when they're doing great. But the act of sustaining is based on that Old Testament idea of holding someone up. And yeah. Moses' arms, you got to hold them up when they start failing, when they start flagging. That's yeah. exactly the hands when- that hang down. Uh, bear one another's burdens. I mean, it's all over in scripture. That, That's that, exactly that, right. Yeah, this is this is our our second primary duty. That's exactly right. And so we're going to fail. We're going to make mistakes. Individuals are going to fail. Now, what do you do as the as the community? What are you going to do as the as the church family? You got to come behind them, right? I the punishment is strong enough for the individual. Let's not have them inflicted by the congregation. And so to that end. Paul saying, say that contrary wise, verse seven, you ought rather to forgive him and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one be swallowed up with overmuch sorrow. Paul's letter was meant to bring about change. But at the same time, he doesn't want it to go on the full end where the individual is just gone, right? That they that they pull themselves out of the congregation by virtue of the fact that they can't, they're overwhelmed. And so I, I love that he has the responsibility to maybe give that discipline to the congregation that isn't their job. Your job is to comfort, take care of, right? Christ taught the same thing in 35, 18. Even if an individual is no is not is not worthy of partaking the sacrament, do you get rid of him out of the congregation? He's like, no, you do not. You keep him in, you keep him there. And and the same principle here is in verse eight, wherefore I beseech you that you would confirm your love toward him. Good. And that's the same thing Christ teaches the Nephites, right? Don't cast them out. You don't know when they will return and be healed. That's exactly right. You don't know. My job is to put down the discipline, Christ would say. That's my job. And that discipline will get them on the right path. That's, a, that's, what, that's what Alma's talking about in Alma 42 with the concept of punishment. It's God's punishment. He gets to determine this, right? And, and I know we don't like the word punishment that's got negative connotations, but the idea is there are consequences to behavior. And individuals in certain positions have the responsibility to lay down those consequences. Christ gives those responsibilities at times to other individuals within the community, but I don't have them. And therefore, what's my job? My job is to make sure the individual isn't swallowed up over much with sorrow. My job is to make sure that they know that I love them. That's my job. Their punishment is enough on their own. They don't need to be overwhelmed by the many. That's good. And maybe just a, a word about uh, punishment or whatever, as you said. Uh, I mean, I, I like, you know, humbling, basically, God humbles us to bring us back to him. But having uh, had opportunity to uh, to participate in a, a number of uh, what used to be called disciplinary now membership councils, I will tell you, and I've been in a, a bunch in various positions I've been in over the years, I have never, ever, ever felt love as powerfully as i have felt it there god's love for people and the love of everyone there for people uh only love and encouragement and forgiveness and a desire to help people that's the only feeling i've ever felt in that kind of a setting and more powerfully than i can express uh and so i i hope that uh if anyone is listening to this that uh, maybe is a little worried about that don't worry. It, it These are councils of love. Uh, really, truly, that's the only way I could describe it is that these are councils of love that are designed to help someone to come back to God. Well, and that's a that's a um, 
your expression is one that I've heard from others, right, that have been in these councils on both ends of it, those who have been in the council because of their behavior and those who have had to sit in the council and represent or or the, the different aspects of those councils. It's if the, if the individual is humble and feel this is a place of God's love, no question. And yep. the individuals involved in it know this. So, and, and I've never sensed disappointment ever. It, well, that's not true. One time, and it was uh, someone who didn't come back. They wouldn't come back to me to say, here's how I'm mm-hmm. doing. And that's when there was disappointment, right? Um, right? Just that, hey, we want to keep helping you and you won't let us help. That right. So, uh, but uh, that's the only kind of disappointment I've ever seen ever. And it wasn't so much in the person as in uh, the situation. How do we, how do we help? So right. uh, I think that's important as well. Yep. And, and so to that end, I think I look at second Corinthians two and it's Paul explaining why he wrote the letter and then, and then explaining to the congregation, their responsibility for people who've, who've had done wrong, right? If they are, if they're going through this process, if they are making this change, if they're experiencing the sorrow, which is what we're about to transition to, if they're experiencing that sorrow, then you need to be there for them. You need to make sure that they aren't swallowed up in this and that it, because the because as he says in verse eleven, Satan, uh, lest Satan should take advantage of us, we're not ignorant of his devices. We know what he does. He got us to do wrong in the first place. As we go through the repentance process, he can really hit us on that too. So right, get us to misconstrue it, missee it, misunderstand what repentance is, and and why this should be a positive thing, and how it should be a revelatory thing. To me, one of the greatest experience, the greatest aspects of what we'll get into Second Corinthians seven is how repentance is meant to be revelatory. If you don't, if there's no revelation involved in the repentance process, then it's not really happening the way it should be. And so, yeah. and, and so there's, here's Paul going, you need to make sure we do this because we know Satan and we know what his devices are. We know what his, we know what tools he uses. We know the behaviors that he engages in and how he gets us to do these things. And, and he'll take us at either extreme. I'll make it so that you don't feel guilty. I'll play with you when you're experiencing guilt either way. And so, so I think at least in terms of that, that's kind of how I see the setup of chapter two and this discussion of why he wrote the letter and now what the congregation needs to do with those who are going through the repentance process. Good. So with that, that to me does take us to chapter seven because he picks up on this theme a little bit later. So it's as we, as we can go through the conclusion of this, Let's pick up down here in verse chapter seven, verse five, because he kind of picks up again what they were doing. So when we were coming to Macedonia, our flesh had no rest, but we were troubled on every side without were fightings within were fears. So this seems like maybe, I don't know if it's related back to chapter one and the troubles they had in Asia. This is Macedonia. This is Greece or Europe. It's not Asia, but he's describing the fact that we got over there. There's problems in the church. There's problems without the church. And this was not, this wasn't good. Nevertheless, in that state, God comforted those that are cast down. And he comforted us by Titus's coming. Now, back in chapter two, he had said, we wanted to come down and see you guys in Corinth, but but Titus hadn't come here yet. We, we were going to go down and see Titus, but Titus never showed up. Now we pick up the story, and it appears that Titus is bringing them Paul, a letter from Corinth. So Titus has been the representative there in Corinth, and he's been exchanging back and forth. They wanted to meet him. They wanted to meet with Titus, but they had been able to. Now they get this report from Titus. By the way, that leads it. 
I'm, and I'm, I got to make sure I do this right, lest anyone misconstrue what I'm saying. The ecclesiastical structure, the administrative structure of the church in the New Testament really isn't like ours in, in many ways. But there is some value in seeing Paul almost like a mission president sometimes. I mean, he doesn't get to visit all the congregations, but he does send people to those congregations. Right. So, so, and again, it's not exact, it's not perfect. It's not even close to a perfect, a one-on-one -on -one analog, but there's an element of where you can almost see Paul stays back here and he sends people out to the congregations right. and they bring in the letters and they bring responses back. He gets reports of the mission field out there. Right. Yeah. Now, and this is one of the things that we've talked about a couple of times, but I think it's worth reminding ourselves that, uh, I mean, this is, the church is so nascent. It's so new. And and Paul has helped it to grow in some ways. I mean, if we were businessmen, we'd say it's, it's probably uh, outgrown uh, its capacity to mm -hmm. to uh, what, what? No, I can't. The supply chain capacity, right? Uh, it, it's just grown so quickly you can't keep up with it. And so he has these three journeys, but most of his time is spent trying to take care of the people who have already been converted and the, yep. the places he's already been and making sure they're doing okay. Uh, and so he's, he's really both doing missionary work, but also this idea of strengthening churches and building the kingdom where he started the kingdom at building, continuing to build the kingdom and, and steady that ship as it's uh, going forward. And that's what I think all of these letters are Yep, is Paul trying to, these aren't the letters where he's converting people. These are the letters where he's trying to keep them going and his sending people out and getting word back and then sending them out. We know he sent Chloe, he sent uh, different men and women with his letters mm -hmm. to convey them and receive word back from them. Uh, and that's what this, not only what the letter is that we're reading as part of, but this story of his going different places and then Titus coming is part of that same effort. Yep. No, you're exactly right. First Thessalonians ends with him saying, okay, uh, well, we're going to send Luke here, Mark's with me, we're going to send these people here, back and forth. Th these letters aren't missionary letters. These are yeah. these are to the church. You're exactly right. right. In some ways, then there is value to seeing these general conference talks to some degree. Right. Yeah. These are yeah, or or maybe state conference talks given virtually. Conference. Yeah, this is the Zoom state conference this is talk. The Zoom version. Um, yeah, where where uh, th this stake has this issue, and we're helping you. Yes. Yep. So so with that said, they're in Macedonia. So this is above Corinth, right? So Macedonia is north of Corinth. So but while they're up there, Titus comes to them, and it says according to this, so so we were we were downcast, and whether that's the same downcast scenario that was back in chapter one. Now he says we were downcast up in Macedonia. This didn't this it was it was just as bad, but Titus came to us and comforted us. The Lord comforted us through Titus in verse six, and not by his coming only, but by the consolation wherewith he was comforted in you. Ah, so Titus has come back and reported on what happened in Corinth at the reception of Paul's letter. When he told us your earnest desire, your mourning, your fervent mind toward me, so that I rejoiced the more. Now, back in chapter two, he said, this is why I wrote the letter, so right. that I could experience this. Chapter seven, ah, and when Titus came, I got to experience that. And I think you have to, to think of Paul like, okay, he has a lot of people in Corinth he loves. Then he writes this letter. He's worried. Are, do they hate me now? 
Yep. Um, did it work or are they just offended or, or what's happened here? These are people I love and, and I care about how they feel about me. Uh, yeah. I was going to say what I needed to say regardless, but I still would like them to love me because I love them. And so this is a tremendous comfort for him. And that, that to me is one of the intriguing aspects of Christ's uh, advice. We we read it, we list it off because it's given in such nice pithy phraseology. But the Sermon on the Mount, when he says, blessed are those who persecute you, right? Rejoice when they beat or, you or down. When, when you're persecuted, not those who do the persecuting. Well, well yeah. yeah. But yeah. but but Luke takes it stronger and says, when you are, when you are treated this way, rejoice. Yeah. I'm always struck by that because, yeah, that sounds good. It really does. But put it to pavement, that's hard to do. Yeah. We are social creatures. We like being validated. And, and, and that's not a bad thing. We need validation. In fact, in our gospel, you need to be validated. It's just God asks to let him validate us, right? Not the yeah. world, but let me validate you. But but you need right. to be validated. You need to be, you need to, your work needs to be recognized at some level. Otherwise, we all need to be valued. Right, right. And so this advice that Christ gave is a lot harder to do then I think sometimes we give credit for it. We read it and go, well, yeah, of course, that's just what you do. And I want to go, yeah, but think real hard about what he's asking you to do here. That's hard. And when yeah. you find people in the scriptures that do it, it's hard. And so Paul's been doing it. It's hard. It's, I have to write this letter. I think there's a lot of people that aren't going to like me for it. Yeah. Right? I, if, you're in a, if you're in a leadership position within our church, bishop, relief society president, young men's president, whatever it is, we don't have young men's president anymore, right? <laughs> Deacon's more present, a young women's uh, 12, 14-year-old, whatever it is, it's hard to go against. Yeah. It's just, it's hard. No one likes to do that. We we work better in groups, generally. We, yeah. we like agreement with one another. I mean, that's, it's hard. It's very yeah. hard. Yeah, it's it's sometimes very necessary, right? And mm -hmm. I'm thinking now. I think was it? Uh, uh, oh, I can't remember who, so I won't say who. But uh, one of the apostles gave a talk about where the the water goes of the, the ocean goes the wrong yep. way up against the the river, right? Uh, sometimes it's necessary, is what he was trying to say. But as you said, it's tough. It's tough. And we're going to have to turn to God more than anyone and anything else in those kinds of times. Right. And if you, and if you follow that, uh, that um, metaphor further or metaphor, I guess it's an allegory since it's reality. If you look at the place where the water goes upstream, meaning the water that comes downstream, mm -hmm. that's rough water. Yeah. Yeah. It's turbulent. It's turbulent. Right. Yeah. The, and we I don't think, like turbulence in our lives, but it's going to happen. Right. When you're on that boundary, when you're on that fringe on the edge, that's where it's rough. And, and, this is where it's rough. This is this is where this is where skin is in the game in the gospel, and, right. and at some point in our spiritual development, we have to recognize we have skin in the game, and it's and it's not going to be fun, and it's not going to be easy. It's this: what am I going to do now? I have to do this, and I don't want to do it. Yeah. So, with that said, though, Paul's gotten the message from Timothy: Hey, it looks like things are turning around in Corinth. And that leads to verse, so he says, verse seven, so I rejoiced, I rejoiced the more. The letter worked, it did what I wanted to. So verse eight, for though I made you sorry with the letter, I do not repent, right? Mm -hmm. I know I made you feel bad. I know I know that you started to grieve and 
I don't repent for that, though I did repent. And this is kind of important. The word repent can mean to turn around or to change, right? He no. doesn't want, he didn't want to write the letter. He just, he explained how he repented back in chapter two. I didn't want to do it. I yeah. didn't want to do this, but I don't repent doing it. Yeah. Yep. Right. So if I perceive that the same epistle hath made you sorry. So though, maybe let, let me read just how I think we can take it. that. Though I, I did not repent, though I did repent. I think what he's saying is, I I know I had to do it, but I was sorry as I did it. Yes. Yes. That's, I, that's what I was going to say. Repentance, which can mean change, can also mean to feel sorry for. Yeah. Right. I didn't want, I didn't like feeling sorry, but I don't repent at all at writing that letter. I don't feel sorry that I wrote the letter. And why? Well, because it made you sorry, though it were but for a season. And that, I think, is important to the repentance process, because that's what he's about to get into. Right. It's not meant to last forever, right? P right? Paul's letter was to bring about a change so that when Paul got down there to see them again, it would be, we'd all be able to discuss things and we'd be able to be happy. Yeah. And then Paul qualifies this, now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that you sorrowed under repentance. And what I like about that is it's almost as if he recognizes there's a difference between being made sorry and sorrowing under repentance. Yep. The Greeks are going to show a difference. One's a passive verb, one's an active. So whereas he said, the epistle made you sorry, you can almost see him in verse 9 go, well, what? And, and by that, I don't mean I made you sorry, right? It led you to sorrowing under repentance. Yeah. And Being it reminds me, oh, go ahead. No, go what you're saying. I was just going to say, it reminds me of Alma counseling his son where he says, I don't want you to sorrow uh, uh, it, or and basically feel guilty, but except for that, that sorrow brings you to repentance, right? That's yeah. the purpose of the sorrow or the guilt, not to stew, not to feel bad about yourself, but to say, oh, I got to change. And as right. soon as you're there, then leave off with the sorrowing and move forward. Well, and and, then, and that's the beauty of it. It's It's got to be you, right? If yeah. I make you sorry, then all that happened is you got caught. Yeah. So much of what we have people going, well, I, I apologize for this behavior. I want to go, did you or did you just get caught? Yeah. And having gotten caught, realize, oh, now I got to fix this social situation I'm in. So this yeah. is what I've got to do. But that's not repentance. That's not sorrowing under repentance. I have a, a the difference for me is um, I describe it sometimes as uh, there's lists. And we have two sets of lists in our minds. There's the list of things that we know that we shouldn't do or should do. And they're just on the list. And you do them and you don't do them because they're on the list. But over on the other list are a list of things by which you now know why you should do them or why you shouldn't do them. Right? Those lists can have the same things on them, but they're not the same. Right? A missionary on a mission has a list of things that they can or cannot do. You do them. But this list is more important. Why should I not do them? Why should I do these? When you make that switch from one list to the other, that's when I think you finally become a missionary. I remember what had happened on my mission when here's the list of everything that you do as a missionary, but it somehow flipped over and I went, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Now I know why. That makes sense. Yep. Right? My boy, Jack, my, my son, Jack, my uh, second oldest, when he was... Five. So Emma, that would have put Emma at eight. Yep, that sounds about right. So we moved into this house and they were playing in the backyard with some neighbor kids. Now we had a hemp jump rope, 
right? Just jump rope, a rope jump rope, not a plastic one. And so the, the kids were all playing in the back and Jack must've been swinging it around, just swinging around like a five-year-old would do and whacked them in the head, right? So mm-hmm. Emma comes running into the house. She's bawling. <laughs> and Jack's right on her heels going, daddy, 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 I didn't do it. I didn't do it. I didn't. Which is true from a children's perspective. I've realized yeah. this. When they say they didn't do it, they're not lying. What they really mean by that is I never intended to do this. It happened. Yeah. So like if they drop a cup, I didn't do that. You're like, well, you did. You just didn't mean to. So yeah. So what they're saying is I did not (laughs) do that intentionally. Not I didn't do that. That's exactly right. So if you can get that parenting rule down, you'll be able to go, I hate they're lying. It's like, yeah, they're not always lying. They just never meant to do that ever. It wasn't intentional. Okay, so Emma comes running in, she's bawling, and she's saying all these things, and uh, and so, okay, I talk to her, go, you okay? Yeah, daddy, I'm okay. All right, fine, good. Let me talk to Jack, and with that, Emma was fine. She went back outside. Her job was done. Her job yeah. was to make sure that Jack got in trouble for hitting her in the head. Okay, yeah. so, but now Jack's looking at me. He's like shaking. He's like, daddy, 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 I didn't mean to, I didn't mean to, I didn't mean to. I go, I know, I know you didn't. I know you didn't, Jack, but- and then like any good parent would do, I pulled out the, yeah, but you could have really hurt Emma. And my, in my back of my mind, I'm like, no, you can't. You're a five-year-old. It's a rope. You're yeah. not going to hurt her that bad unless you yeah. choke her with it. So anyway, um, but I'm like, no, you could have really, hurt, you could have really hurt your sister. I mean, this could have taken out an eye to go a little Christmas story. Yeah. At five, Jack, as I'm looking at him, his countenance changed. And what I mean by that in this case is, I watched him process what I was saying in his head. He knew on a list that hitting your sister is bad. But having just talked to him about this, I watched it switch to the other list. I watched it. I I could see it working in his mind and I watched his face, everything change. And he started to cry. And he's like, daddy, I would never want to hurt Emma. I watched it move from one list to the other right he was made sorry in the first place by his sister but had now sorrowed now i don't think he did anything wrong but he was now sorrowing on his own this this moving over to this list now i know why it's on this list that's revelatory revelation moving things from this is why i want this is these are the behaviors i want you to engage in i want you to figure out why i want you to engage in those behaviors when you right. can make that jump that's revelatory and yep. that is repentance. Yep. Right? Yep. Now, I should tell you the end of that story. Of course, Jack like hit her the next day. I mean, he just didn't hit her with a rope ever again. So, yeah. so there's that lesson. <laughs> yeah. Well, we're all there. Right. right. But I watched it. And I and th- to me, that is an example that I always go f- through of this idea of there's being made sorry and then there's sorrowing under repentance or to change, to transform. And I watched it happen. And it was this move from list to list, right? You can go to the Garden of Eden and see how Adam and Eve were given a list of behaviors, rules. And you can see when it switches over. When Eve partakes of the fruit, now understands, now discerns things back to discerning and realizes, ah, I know why that's on my list. Yeah, that's good. And and a lot of times that's what sorrow is. Like even... 
uh, as, as you were saying, like sometimes it's not something I intended to do wrong and may not inherently be wrong, but the way it affected someone was damaging for them. And like uh, I will have sorrow for that. And that's because I understand what I didn't want was to hurt that person, right? That was the point behind all of this. Uh, when we really understand, this goes back to that big picture we were talking about, mm -hmm. the eternal perspective. When we understand the consequences of our actions, uh, according to that bigger picture, then we have the kind of sorrow we should, not the kind that makes us feel so guilty that we think terribly of ourselves and we beat ourselves up and we wonder why I'm never going to be good enough and so on. But the kind where you say, okay, that's actually not what I want to have happening. That's exactly and right. so I'm going to do what I can to, to change me, to change this, whatever it is, because that is not the consequences and outcomes that I desire. That's exactly right. And in fact, that's, to me, that's exactly what Paul means when he says, for you were made sorry after a godly manner, mm -hmm. right? Working sorrow under repentance, he will refer to in verse 10 as godly sorrow that worketh repentance unto salvation. Godly sorrow. This is the type of sorrow that God himself has. It's this perspective, this eternal perspective. We're, at this point, you look at this and go, godly sorrow godly sorrow what type of sorrow does god have it's certainly not for behavior wrong behavior but paul is suggesting here that the sorrow that god has is the same type of sorrow we ought to have as we move through the repentance process it's the only type of sorrow that can lead to a repentance process yeah so the question then is what does god sorrow right mm -hmm. and you and i have both taught pearl of great price for me the best answer to that is in moses 7 when Enoch has yeah, that like exact verse 41 same and yeah yeah and right? he says seeing these shall why should not the heavens weep seeing these shall suffer right i ask them to love one another yeah. and choose me their father but yep. they hate their own blood and they didn't and they rejected and they they rejected me yeah right it's this is the the godly sorrow to me to your point is that eternal perspective of the behaviors that you've just engaged in and that's yep. and that's revelatory. This we were we were discussing this on, in church on Sunday in Elders Quorum. Um, I think it is an essential element of the repentance process to recognize the damage that you've caused. Yeah, to to look at the big picture of it, mm -hmm. right? I I don't, I, and that led me to thinking this over this week about this. Is there any sin that really doesn't affect others? In other words, is there any no. sin that only affects us and nobody else in any other fashion? And I kind of come to the conclusion, no. No, I think absolutely not. That's right? one of the things that I keep trying to get youth and young adults to understand. No, this always affects someone else. It's never right? just you. And you yeah. may go into this situation where we've set up these kind of guidelines, don't do this because it could lead to this. And it doesn't lead to that for you. Uh, but right. uh, although it still probably is spiritually damaging to you in some ways, but, but think you may not know what it did to everyone else and where they go because of that. Right? And that's exactly what Paul just got done teaching in first Corinthians as well. Yeah, that's right. right. It's, it, you have a liberty, you have a freedom, but if you exercise that and someone else is weaker and they're destroyed by it, but, but even in this process, I just go, the repentance process requires you to see afar off the damage that was caused by this. 
this eternal perspective. And that's where there's that's where that fine line comes in with chapter two. You could be overwhelmed by that if you get caught up in it. Yeah. Which is why you need the love and the support and the compassion. Exactly. And I think Paul describes it so well in verse 11. I love verse 11. For behold, this self-same thing, talking about the sorrow of repentance, godly sorrow, right? For behold, this self-same thing that ye sorrowed after a godly sort, what carefulness it wrought in you. Yea, what clearing of yourselves. Yea, what indignation, what fear, what vehement desire. Yea, what zeal. And then, yea, what revenge. I'm not that one's a little tricky, but I think it's it's this idea of uh, I don't think it's taking revenge on yourself or someone else, but but having things made right and justice. But anyway, I'm, I'm not sure on that one. In all things, you have approved yourselves to be clear in this matter. But I love the idea. You, it makes you more careful and you clear yourself or in other words, change yourself. Um, you're indignant about what you've done in the consequences you fear the, those consequences what you may have done to other people and you have a dis- vehement desire and zeal to change to be different to make things the way that they should be uh at, rather than the way that you did make them that's well, true repentance right i love that i love that and I, in fact with that i wonder if we could read that list in verse 11 as as um not just things that you experience but maybe these are what got cleared from you what got cleared your indignation your oh, vehement desire, your revenge. These these oh, are what got cleared from you. These overwhelming emotions that separated and cut you off from others, that got cleared out. Good. Good. And now you're clear on this matter, you're right? Clear. So move you're on. Clear. You, right. you had those feelings. You wanted to change. Move on. See, and that's what that's what I love about the repentance process. We we talk about it, and I President Nelson has emphasized this. It's not scary. It's a, it's a right. clearing. It's you, you need to be cleared out. You are you are con- corrupted by, again, in my mind, to the way things seem versus the way they are. You are not seeing clearly. Yeah. You you are you are reacting to things that people are doing. You are engaging in behaviors that whatever it is, sin is not. There's a reason why we call it corruption or dirt or whatever. It, it dirties things. It, yeah. it opaques things. It's it not, muddies them. Yeah. It muddies them. It yeah. muddies them. And there's nothing better than taking a good clean bath. That's right. And the repentance process is it's revelatory by nature. It pulls away the veil. You, you will feel better. You will feel yeah. better. You yeah. will think better. You will think clearer. It's repentance is awesome. And, and I, I don't know why people get scared by it. It's, it's, but I think part of it is, is, I think, I think what it is, is what you and I have talked about. You see the consequences of your behavior. That's embarrassing. That's embarrassing. Yeah. You'd like to think you're better than that. Yeah. But, but a clear eyed view of where we stand is absolutely essential to moving forward. And in fact, I would maybe just say two things about that wonderful bunch of stuff you just said. I mean, one, I can remember very distinctly in a gospel doctrine class, someone talking about, you know, repentance. How do you feel about repentance? And having a wonderful brother in our ward who I respect and think of so highly, and he's he's wonderful and very honest. And he said, it's it's scary. I don't like to have to do it. It's painful. And I, I was sitting there about to say, it's the most wonderful, happy thing I know of. And I just thought, wow. How do how can he have such a different reaction, right? But to me, this is just thank goodness I can realize it's it's my mulligan, right? Do over, yeah. okay. Thank goodness I can say whoop, 
messed up on that one. Let's let's try this. Let's run that play again, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, uh, but I also think going back to our earlier discussion that the reason for sin is because we've lost sight of who we are and and who others are and what all of our purpose is. Right to go back to that big picture and what President Nelson has been talking about, uh, we we are seeking something, and this will go to a talk by President Nelson. We're seeking for something that actually can't be gained through that sin. We we just lost sight of what really will give us what we want, and uh, and as a result, we could put ourselves in a worse place. Thank goodness we can just readjust our vision and start over. Right. And I, I'll, I'll add to that. And I think part of that fear of repentance, which if if 11 can be read that way, repentance gets rid of fear. Right. It says, yes, I think we're afraid of what others will think back For to the sure. social element. So so back to chapter two, where he's like sufficient is the punishment of the one. They don't need to be overwhelmed by the many. And yet how many of us don't want to repent because of what others are going to say? Yeah. Well, and I'll I'll admit freely of myself, there are things I'm not worried about with God because I know I've cleared them up with Him. But I would still be really embarrassed if anyone else oh, knew. I think all of us yeah. should have that, right? Yeah. I yeah. I think back to some of the the worst things that I've done, and it took me two or three years to finally tell a story about something I did as a kid with someone yeah. treating someone else in the hallway of the school. It is yeah. my most embarrassing moment ever in the way I've treated another human being, and I'm just like. Yikes. It, I, to that individual, I avoided her in church for two years. Yeah. I, I finally I hear getting I, ready for a mission and uh, she's in there. And then finally I sat her down and go, I've just got to talk to you. I've got to talk to you. And I've got to, I've got to unload. And she was so good about it. Oh, that's great. So good about it. I was able to, yeah. uh, I came off the mission, was going through the temple one day. She was going through for endowments, getting ready for marriage. I mean, I, this is, Yeah. And I remember thinking, what was I scared of? Yeah. What was I scared of? Yeah. Yeah, you're right. We're so worried about what others say. We're social creatures and we're so worried about this back to Christ's and the Beatitudes to those that, you know, suffer persecution. That's across the board. And so I think sometimes it's self-imposed persecution. And we got to figure out how to get past it. I'm, I'm with you. And I think that understanding it the way Paul explains it really helps with this. Right. This this is this is one of the reasons why I love Second Corinthians as, as much as I do. I read it and I see one of the best explanations to true repentance and what it requires for true repentance. This this revelatory experience of godly sorrow. When I have that, then uh, the fact that the repentance process ends in a revelation. The only one who can forgive you is God. You need to know that God forgave you. Ergo, that's a revelation. Ah, beautiful. Right? And that's, that's an eternal perspective. The repentance process leads you to that eternal perspective to see afar off. As verse 11 would say, it clears it all up. And if we were to, to finish reading, and we don't have to, but if we were to finish reading the rest of the chapter, you'd see it comes back to this idea of everything being from being full of love, which I think ties into that eternal perspective we started with, that uh, they see Titus and Paul see the people in Corinth, and they all see each other for who they really are with this eternal perspective. And so everything is being done in love. And so there, there's a lot of joy, even after you've waited through sorrow to get there, there's a lot of joy 
because we see each other for the kinds of beings we really are. Right? I mean, verse 14, I'm not ashamed. Paul, I'm not ashamed to know you guys. I never have been. I might have been filled with the spirit of heaviness, but I'm not ashamed. Titus yeah. isn't ashamed. His, his inward, as it describes affection, is more abundant towards you. And I think from an apostle's perspective, this is an incredible outpouring of love. Verse 16, I rejoice, therefore, that I have confidence in you in all things. Yeah. Uh, I, amen to that. Huh? Right. I think I every time we listen to General Conference, does he not, does not President Nelson end with this? Now, with all the things that we need to fix, guys, I know we can do it. I have all confidence in you. I rejoice yeah. in my confidence. That's got to be a gift. I, I don't know. I don't know what it's like for you in my in your classes, Carrie. But every now and then, um, one of the reasons why I like to teach is as we talk about these principles, as we talk about charity, for instance, in class, I am given a manifestation, for lack of a better term, of the true divine nature of the students in my class. Yes. I don't know all that they're going through. In fact, I'm probably one of those horrible teachers because. I don't really ask to know what they're going through, right? That's that's between them and other things. My job's there to help them understand the scriptures, but I am always struck by this. And this verse, I think I rejoice in the confidence in all things. I, we've got things going on in our family, like every other family does, right? With individuals who are struggling with different things. As I've prayed about it and my concerns and my fears being beset, as Paul would say, both without and within, the Lord's response to me was like, I got this. I got this. And it will all come due in my own time, I promise. So rejoice in God's confidence in you in all things. I think this might be one of the more supernal gifts that the leaders of our church receive. For all the trials that they have to go through and, and the things that they have to tell us that they don't want to tell us things that are needful for us to hear that they don't want to say, that they cry with many tears in their night, having to write this in anguish and so forth. What they're given is this divine revelation of their confidence. Yeah. yeah. As a teacher, as a parent, uh, in church callings, all sorts of things, they, my greatest moments are when you get just that glimpse God gives you of how he feels about people. And you say, uh, the, these are amazing people and there is great stuff ahead. And I think that's what Paul is saying too. That's the eternal perspective, isn't it? Yeah. That's the eternal perspective. In fact, this word confidence, Peter's going to use it when he talks about those incredible promises of a confidence that is given to us by God. They have confidence in us. And, and that to me, in my day to day, just knowing that my church leaders they have confidence. God has confidence. He sees from the large picture. He has the divine eternal perspective. Yeah, he's got confidence that we can do this, which might explain why I think he's generally a pretty happy guy. There you go. Well, that's wonderful, Dan. Thank you so much. Uh, just powerful stuff. I mean, there's always more that we could do, but I think we hit on the, the most important things in the highlights. So I am grateful for the, uh, the uplifting that I've felt as I've been with you and uh, my renewed desire to uh, both act in love and to make things right with God and, uh, and to just move forward in, with a big picture and joy. So thank you. You, you both. Yep. Thank you very much, Carrie. 
And to our audience, we hope you uh, had that experience and share it with others and have a great day. Thank you. We'll see you.